Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Severine Atusser, author of the book, The Frontlines of Peace, An Insider's Guide to Changing the World. Severine Atusser is an award-winning author, peace builder, and researcher, as well as a professor of political science at Barnard College, Columbia University. She is the author of The Frontlines of Peace, Peaceland, and the Trouble with Congo, in addition to articles for publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Foreign Affairs. Severine, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show, Beth. I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about how you grew up. You talk about your dad in the book and how that got you interested in things beyond um, beyond your immediate world and the international sphere. Can you talk about that and how you became interested in peace building? Absolutely. So I grew up in Paris, uh, and my dad was a sound technician for the French radio station. And the thing about him is that he didn't stay in Paris a lot. He actually spent his time traveling to foreign places, to foreign countries. And uh, my memories of my childhood are very often of my dad being somewhere far away. So my earliest memory is of him covering the Iranian revolution um, and then covering the war between Iran and Iraq. Uh, And then whenever uh, something important happened in the world, my dad was always getting a phone call and and then rushing there and covering it with the reporters and with the journalists. So I grew up hearing a lot of first-hand stories about uh, conflict zones and not conflict zones, about international relations. He would also cover president's visits, and uh, all of the fancy conferences that happened between ministers. Anyway, very exciting life. And I grew up hearing all of his stories. And I loved that as a kid because uh, like when one day he would come back and he would tell me everything about the culture in Japan and the prime minister and the emperor. And then the next time he would be back and he would tell me about how he had covered um, the Algerian revolution or, you know, things that were so interesting to me. And, and so when I grew up, I wanted to be like him. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to go to all of these foreign places and, and to leave all of these really cool experiences. And how did that lead you to your time in the Congo? And can you, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with working in that country and how it shaped your view of peace building? So the the transition from journalism to Congo is that basically I tried to be a journalist and I failed because I tried to enter a journalism school. I was rejected uh, at the oral exam stage because supposedly I had a humanitarian vocation, which after several years, 
I agreed that, yes, I didn't want to be a journalist. What I wanted to do was to help people because what my dad was always telling me about was about how when he was in Rwanda, in the former Yugoslavia, in Algeria, he had actually managed to make life better for people and he had made a difference in people's lives. Um, and so that's what I thought journalists did. Uh, and that's apparently not what the jury of journalism school wanted to hear when uh, they interviewed me. So anyway, I was rejected from journalism school. Uh, I spent a couple of years uh, doing a master's degree and then realizing that what I really, really wanted to do was humanitarian aid. And so that's how I arrived eventually in Congo, because I had worked for Doctors of the World uh, in Kosovo. There I met my husband, who was working for Doctors Without Borders. And uh, Doctors Without Borders decided to send both of us to Congo in the early 2000s. It was exactly in, in the year 2000. And when I arrived in Congo, I, I, I think I fell in love with the country for a million different reasons, because it's a beautiful country. It's, it's incredibly beautiful uh, in terms of uh, the, um, the just the countryside. The culture is fascinating. It's extremely different from the culture I grew up with from France uh, and from the United States where I had studied. Um, I thought that people were fun and friendly and nice. Uh, and so I, I found the country absolutely fascinating and the culture absolutely fascinating and at the same time when I arrived in Congo it was at the peak of uh, the war there. There had been a war going on that included uh, all of the foreign countries, all of the neighboring countries of Congo. So the seven neighboring countries plus all of their rebel groups that were they were all present on Congolese territory at the same time, you had a, Congo, a civil war going on in Congo with hundreds of armed groups. Uh, so it was ex an extremely complicated situation. And it was also an extremely important crisis to, uh, to try to find a solution to because it was on its way to becoming the largest humanitarian emergency in the world and the deadliest conflict since World War II. So, Super important uh, country, super important conflict. Uh, and when I arrived in Congo, I had an offer to go back to NYU and to do a PhD at New York University. And so I, I was in Congo trying to think, okay, do I want to continue working in humanitarian aid or do I want to go ahead and do a PhD? And I realized that the more I talked to people in Congo, the less I understood what was going on. Um, I was talking with diplomats, with non-governmental organization staff members, with analysts, and they would all tell me, oh, that's very simple. If you want to understand what's going on in Congo, well, it's a war between, let's say, Congo and Rwanda, or they would say Congo and Uganda, or Congo and Angola. You, you can take any of the foreign countries that, neighboring, uh, that neighbors Congo. And so it's it's a war between uh, this country and that country, and all of the armed groups are basically allied with the two countries that are fighting. And then I would arrive in a village with Doctors Without Borders, and uh, I would speak with the villagers, and they would tell me, oh, 
well, there is this group that is allied with the Congolese government that is fighting against that group that's, that is still allied with the Congolese government. And I would say, but it doesn't make sense. Uh, so every time, every time I felt that someone had given me a key to understand the conflict and a framework of analysis, uh, the next day I would meet people who would tell me exactly what was going on in their village. And I would realize that my framework of analysis just didn't work. And so that's how I became so fascinated by Congo, because not only it's a, it's a fantastic country to, to visit and, and to live in, but also from a political science point of view, from an, a foreign analyst, at the time, it was a country that we didn't understand. We didn't understand the conflict. And it was incredibly important that we understand the conflict if we wanted to stop it so that we stopped all of the people dying and so that we stopped the massive humanitarian crisis that was ongoing. Thanks for sharing all of that, because I think knowing a little bit about you and where you came from and some of how this conflict and your involvement shaped your worldview is really interesting because this book is not your typical book about peacekeeping or how international relations type structures should engage with conflict zones. And I think you really learn reading this book that some of the the places that you experienced and how you grew up maybe caused you to have kind of a different lens on this. And you start to even think about your early experiences and reflect on them of what you maybe wish you had done differently, which I think is a really brave and courageous thing to share. Can you talk about your process of how you came to be more reflective on how the the peacemaking kind of machinery started to form in your mind and, and how you saw that there were opportunities to maybe do things a little differently? It's basically the process of me learning to be a good analyst. Um, when I started working with humanitarian aid organizations, I was in awe of all of the people I was working with, uh, and I actually married one one of them, and I I thought that humanitarian aid workers were heroes that they were there to save people. They made a lot of sacrifices. They sacrificed their professional lives, their family lives, and 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 they did that to help perfect strangers, which to me is such a beautiful attitude. But then. The more I interacted with these people, the more I realized that there were issues really deeply embedded in the aid system. Uh, there is a discrimination uh, uh, that is in the structure of the aid system, which is what I call now the divide between outsiders and insiders, meaning that people who are from outside of the conflict are foreigners, especially based in headquarters, national capitals, uh, coming from rich countries like France or the United States. These people, these foreigners, are considered to have the relevant knowledge, the relevant skills to resolve a conflict. And that's how I ended up in uh, Congo when I was 22, 23 years old, although I didn't know anything about Congo. I didn't know its history. I didn't know its politics. I didn't know its culture. Um, I saw also a lot of attitudes that were 
to me, frankly, racist and really shocking. Um, and it's something that I've seen in Congo and also everywhere else I've worked. I've worked in 12 different conflict zones now. And everywhere I've seen international aid workers interact with local populations in a way that is extremely that is often unacceptable. So, for instance, uh, always saying that uh, local populations, uh, let's say that Congolese people are lazy or that uh, all Albanian people are mafiosis or that uh, all uh, Israeli people are aggressive. You know, the kind of general statement about a population that... uh, they wouldn't dare do in their in their own countries, or they wouldn't dare do on on France or or on non-war countries. So I saw all of these issues, uh, and I thought that it would be really interesting to analyze them as a uh, as an academic. And so my first book was looking a little bit at these issues, but my and my first book was uh, the trouble with the Congo. And my second book, I decided for my second project that looking at all of these issues in the aid system would be the fascinating thing to do. And so I spent an entire book looking at the everyday practices, habits, and narratives uh, of international peace builders and really showing how the way people approach their work on a daily basis, the way they interact with local populations, the way they they, they socialize after work, where they go for a drink, etc. I actually show in my second book that it has a massive influence on the effectiveness of peace building programs. So on whether or not we're going to manage to resolve a conflict and to decrease violence. And you talk about this concept of peace incorporated. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Okay, so peace incorporated is uh, the title of the the part of my new book, The Front Lines of Peace, where I talk in in these two chapters, I talk about the dominant way to build peace in conflict zones. And this dominant way to build peace in conflict zones is uh, a conventional approach that relies on outsiders, on foreigners, and on elites, governments, uh, statesmen, legislators, presidents, rebel leaders. And it's an approach that usually excludes local citizens and grassroots activists and ordinary people. And to me, Peace Inc. is an approach that is extremely problematic uh, because it's based on a lot of misleading and detrimental assumptions. So one of these assumptions, for instance, is the idea that only top-down intervention will end violence, meaning that you you need to interact with presidents and governments. And once the presidents and the governments sign a peace agreement, then peace is going to trickle down and everything is going to be fine in the country, which is absolutely not what usually happens. Um, another misleading assumption is the idea that all good things come together. So, for instance, that you can arrive in a conflict zone and implement a sort a kind of package deal where you have peace and democracy and human rights and justice and gender equality and all of these good things, and you can promote them all together. Well, again, it's uh, 
a completely misleading and inaccurate assumption because all of the research that we have shows that the different components of this package still actually conflict with one another. Very often, for instance, when you try to promote democracy, you do that by organizing elections. But if you organize elections shortly after a war, a lot of research has shown that the elections will trigger more violence. And so that's going to undermine peace. Um, and there are many other assumptions. The, the assumption I was telling you about, the idea that only outsiders have the required skills and expertise to build peace. So by only by uh, relying on people coming from foreign countries, people who have degrees uh, in conflict resolution, etc., that's how we're going to resolve people's conflict as opposed to relying on the people, the ordinary people who are leaving the conflict themselves. So basically, I have two chapters on that in the book, and my first two books were about Peace Inc. So it's really an approach that is uh, extremely problematic, uh, uh, that relies on a dozen, 15 key misleading assumptions. And it's an approach that cannot and doesn't work. And it's an approach that I have shown in, in my three books that sometimes actually fuels violence. And if you want stories, I have plenty of stories about that. The one that you tell in the book about the conflict over livestock grazing was a really interesting way to illustrate some of this. But I'll let you pick because you have a lot of great stories. Well, if, you, if you're interested in the conflict over livestock grazing, then let's talk about this conflict. So there was, it was in Congo. Uh, in, in the mid-2000s, there was uh, a very deadly conflict in the Ruzizi Plain in eastern Congo. And this conflict led to a lot of death, a lot of suffering, and the involvement of a lot of different armed groups, uh, Congolese militias, and the Rwandan government. And so in 2007, three Congolese organizations decided to approach this conflict with the help of a non-governmental organization, an international non-governmental organization that I portray extensively in my book, In the Front Lines of Peace, and this non-governmental organization is called LPI, the Life and Peace Institute. And so for three years, the Congolese organizations focused on understanding what the conflict was. And they organized a lot of small and large-scale meetings, and in these meetings, they included everyone, ordinary people, combatants, military officers, farmers, women's groups, um, ministers, perpetrators of violence, uh, victims of violence, you know, really everyone. And what's fascinating is that I was there at the time, and I remember when we were looking at the conflict in the Ruzizi plane, we, I mean, uh, United Nations officials and uh and other non-governmental organizations, and basically all of the people who work in Peace Inc., like I, like I call it, we always thought, oh, well, the Ruzizi plain, it's a conflict between Congo and Rwanda. And we have, it's a proxy war with uh, armed groups allied with Congo and Rwanda that are fighting over this territory. Easy to understand. Well, the three Congolese organizations that had spent three years really talking with everybody and organizing meetings, they realized that 
the conflict was not a proxy war between Congo and Rwanda, but it was actually a conflict between herders and farmers. Because cattle often destroyed crops, the farmers retaliated by killing the herders. The herders' families then reached out to local militias who went on to attack the farmers' communities and so on and so forth. And so what's really fascinating is that uh, first, this approach, talking with ordinary people, led to a different understanding of the conflict and a much more accurate understanding of the conflict. And it also led to a different solution. Because you can imagine, if you believe in Peace Inc., if you think that the conflict is a war between Congo and Rwanda. The way you're going to try to decrease the violence and resolve the conflict is by organizing these kind of big conferences that we've all seen on TV, uh, where you invite the presidents of the two countries, some of their, their ministers, and everybody talks for hours, and then they sign a peace agreement and they leave, and nothing happens on the ground because these conferences never work. Um, so... But the, the thing at that point is that the, the Congolese organizations realized that they had to have a completely different approach to, uh, to this herder-farmer conflict if they wanted to end the violence. And so where they were really, really smart is that instead of saying, okay, you know, I, I know herder-farmer's conflict, I know how to resolve that, they involved everyone in the definition of the solution. So again, they asked everyone, the combatants, the ordinary citizens, the farmers, the women's groups, the ministers, like everyone, they ask, okay, so now how can we resolve this conflict? And the, the solution was uh, for the members of the community to put in place uh, very, very clear routes that the herders could take with their cattle. They also erected public signposts. I have a photo of one of these public signposts in, in the book. Uh, public signposts to really clearly mark the route that the farmers should take with their cattle. They also established mediation committees. Uh, and in these mediation committees, they put representatives of both farmers and herders so that both of them uh, would smooth out any tensions that may arise. Because, you know, with cattle, even if you have this kind of really clear signs and really, really set roots, you can't always make sure that the cattle are going to stay on the right path. So to make a long story short, uh, of course, there were issues, phase, um, challenges and setbacks. But what's really fascinating is that while all of the elite agreements and large conferences had never made a difference before. Local residents saw tangible results while when the three Congolese organizations and the Life and Peace Institute got involved. For several years, the seasonal migration of cattle took place with very little violence. Uh, dozens of militiamen handed in their weapon, and even more importantly, ethnic groups that were fighting slowly started working together. Uh, so for instance, they started sharing the same market. So to me, this story is fascinating because it shows that there is a different way to go about building peace and that outsiders can help with build peace as long as they don't continue acting the way they usually do. That story is fascinating because it 
it exhibits the the issue that you're kind of talking about with the role of the elites and how that cannot be the best path to both understand the problem, solve the problem, and the need for participatory dialogue to actually make the problem be solved at that local level, that the the dialogue is part of the solution. And so that can't be just brought from the top down. The other part that's really interesting about this story that illustrates another lesson, I think, of the book is how success can actually be a liability in terms of uh, when one of these types of interventions goes well, the reaction, uh, maybe this is peace ink or just human nature to try to export that as a template or scale up. Can you talk about what you what you learned in your research on that part of this story as well? Yeah, so that's that's the sad part uh, and the end of the story. So what happens is that um, I had been studying the Life and Peace Institute for for a long time. And at a point, I got the opportunity to write an op-ed in the New York Times. And I wrote an op-ed, and I, I can't remember if it was two or three paragraphs, or there was a significant part of the op-ed that talked about the work of the Life and Peace Institute and about their approach. Um, And uh, that brought a lot of attention to the Life and Peace Institute, and its staff became flooded with requests for advice, uh, requests for meetings, etc. Everybody wanted to, to, to... to look at what the Life and Peace Institute was doing. The partners of the Life and Peace Institute also became flooded with requests and with offers for funds and for money. And at that point, it became highly problematic because the donors who were offering the funds to the Life and Peace Institute's partners, they were acting on a on a biased understanding of the way LPI worked. So basically what, what they wanted to do, they wanted to reproduce this very successful program, but they wanted to do it on their terms. And on their terms, that meant having a template that they could implement all over the province and uh, also deciding from the start what would be the results, what would be the timeline, uh, what would happen when, because that's how they work, because that's how the United Nations is set up. You need to have specific timelines and indicators and reports and, 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 and results. Uh, they also wanted to go quickly because, uh, again, that's how international organizations are set up and donors are set up. They're set up to work on a six-month program or a one-year program and not the kind of, let's analyze the problem for three years and let's spend three more years thinking about the solution that LPA had been doing. So basically, what happened is that you had a lot of money, uh, you had a lot of people messing up with very, very sensitive problems, and that completely destroyed the um the initiatives that were ongoing in the Ruzizi plane. Um it's really a, a case of throwing money at problems and making things worse. Uh, and so violence picked up again, the mediation committees fell apart, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And to me that's that's one of the things and I'm so glad that you're bringing this up, Beth, 
because that's one of the things that I've, I've tried really hard to say in the book is that there is no template approach to peace. Uh, I cannot give you the 10-step uh, approach to let's resolve conflicts everywhere. The best thing I can tell you is that I can uh, give you broad principles, like, you know, take your time, involve local people, uh, be flexible. I, mean, I, I have a, a number of principles in the book. And also I can give you stories and I can give you a lot of ideas of how things have worked in different parts of the world so that if you want to resolve a conflict, whether it's in the United States, in your own community, or whether you're talking about another country, then you have ideas of what other people have done, what has worked in their situation, what are the problems that they've faced and how they have resolved these problems. And that can give you ideas for your own work. But I'm really not trying to, to, to put forward a new template approach to peace because that would be that would be just plain wrong and, and that would lead to disastrous circumstances, disastrous consequences. So looking at the flip side of this, and you engage with some of these things, these potential um, criticisms or, or pressures that the international aid structure experiences in the book, I want to ask you, um, how would you talk to someone who says, well, we need to have these standardized approaches to measure effectiveness or to avoid you know, abuse or waste. How do we balance those factors with a local bottom-up approach? Well, I would say that if you want to have standardized approach to prevent sexual violence, for instance, and to make sure that the people you send on the ground don't rape the people they're, uh, they're, they're supposed to help, that's completely different uh, from, to me, that's a human rights, uh, sorry, that's a human resources uh, question. That's completely different from the way you approach your actual program on the ground, which is building peace, which is resolving a conflict. And when we're talking about resolving a conflict, analyzing a conflict, finding a way to decrease violence, that's where the template approach is unhelpful. There's another element to peace building and outside foreign influence in country that you explore. That's a bit of um, class differentiation and separation of those who are there working from outside and the population that they're trying to serve. Can you talk about how that can widen a divide in, in achieving goals and any recommendations you have for how outside entities should interact with locals and how that should change moving forward? Yes, absolutely, because it's it's really a central theme in, in this book, in The Front Lines of Peace, and also in my previous book, Peaceland. So you remember when I was telling you that Peace Inc., the standard approach to peace, is based on these misleading assumptions? Well, one of these assumptions, you remember, is the idea that outsiders know best, that foreigners have the relevant skills and expertise. So to most people who work in international aid, uh, what really matters is having knowledge of specific themes like gender or human rights or election organizations. And if possible, having worked in a variety of conflict zones. And in contrast, and although you have exceptions, the knowledge of country specialists is much less valued uh, and the knowledge of local people is usually trivialized. And the consequence is the class structure 
that uh, you mentioned, uh, I mean, what you call the class structure, I think, uh, the fact that foreigners usually fill the management positions and local people make up the lower level staff. And the local people usually can't move up in the hierarchy unless they go abroad and they become expatriates themselves. They become themselves foreign peace builders. And the consequences are quite disastrous uh, because, again, it means that the people who work for the United Nations, for non-governmental organizations, etc., do not necessarily have the understanding they need and the knowledge of local politics and societies that they need to resolve conflict. So can I tell you a story to, to, to illustrate that? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So there is a story that you've read in the book, the, the story of what happened in Bukavu in 2004. So Bukavu is a city in eastern Congo. And in 2004, rebels took over the city, and they went on a looting, raping, and killing spree. And I was there at the time, and there were bombs flying all over. I mean, it was it was absolutely terrifying. And so, at a, at a point, a little boy and his mother saw several people enter the house just next to theirs, and they heard shouts and screams. It was absolutely obvious that their neighbor was about to be raped. So the little boy ran to seek help at the nearby peacekeeping base. But when he arrives at the base, he realized that the soldier on duty was a Uruguayan soldier who didn't speak Swahili and didn't speak French, so didn't speak any of the local languages in Congo. Okay. The little boy tries to use body language and he tries and tries to communicate what is happening. But still, the sentry didn't understand. And then at a point, the peacekeeping soldier breaks into a huge smile and he makes a sign that, yes, I get it. Please wait. He went inside his base and he came back a few minutes later with a pack of cookies that he handed to the boy. Cookies. And to me, this story really illustrates that we're sending people who have, not only they don't speak the local languages and they can't communicate properly with local populations, but on top of that, they have such a poor understanding of the situation that they don't realize that when it's in the middle of raping, killing, and looting, when a little boy tries to to attract the the attention of United Nations peacekeepers whose job is literally to protect the population. It was written in their mandate at the time. They, they were there to protect the population. The peacekeeper doesn't even understand that the little boy is asking for help. And to me, that's absolutely outrageous. And it illustrates all of the problems with sending people don't have a good understanding of what is going on. And the problem with not, not listening to local populations, to ordinary citizens and dismissing their knowledge and dismissing what they say all the time. And so, yes, there are ways you ask me if there are ways to, to do things differently. Absolutely, there are ways to, to do things differently. And that's why I, I love the story that I told you about the Ruzizi plane and about the Life and Peace Institute. That's why I love it so much. 
Because when you look at the Life and Peace Institute, again, it's a Swedish peace-building organization. So again, it's a foreign non-governmental organization, but they are used to working at the grassroots in different conflict zones, and, and they have developed an approach that, to me, works so much better. They usually rely on local employees uh, that are supervised by a few foreigners, and these foreigners often have extensive pre-existing country knowledge. Also, LPI rejects universal approaches to peace building, so the template approach that we were discussing. And instead, they really try to find local solutions and, and tailored solutions to each different situation. And the last thing that's really important is that LPI doesn't implement programs directly. Instead, it works with and through a few hand-picked local organizations. And these local organizations don't even try to resolve the conflicts themselves, but instead they empower local people to analyze their own conflicts to decide on the best and the most feasible answers, and then to implement the solutions. So you, you really see the difference with the usual way to build peace in Warzone with Peace Inc. In the LPI model, it's not foreigners based in headquarters and capital cities who conceive, design, and implement peace building programs. It's not national or provincial elites either, and it's not the state or the government. Instead, it is the intended beneficiaries, including community members themselves, who conceive, design, and implement peace building programs with the help of LPI and its local partners. I could go on and on, but I'll stop talking. No, I love it. And I think some of the things that you mentioned, you know, listening, understanding, empowerment, being the support to to the local goals and initiatives are themes that resonate throughout. I'm wondering, how is this being received when you're talking about the book? It's still relatively new, and I know you've been briefing it. What's the state of, of Peace Inc. now, and how are people taking this message? <laughs> well, so it's it's very early to tell because the book was released uh, less than two months ago, officially released less than two months ago. Um, but the way so far, there has been, I think, three kinds of reaction. Uh, the first one from Peace Inc. I mean, obviously, from the people who work in grassroots peace building, from local activists, uh, from uh, people who try to do things differently, they're absolutely thrilled. They love it. Uh, they keep telling me, I keep receiving messages saying, oh, I loved it so much. I, I bought a copy. I sent it to my grandfather so that he finally understand what I'm doing and why I work the way I work. Or I gifted it to my sister, to my uncle, to my aunt. I think like everybody's family members is now getting copies of the front lines of peace, which is fantastic. That's that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted to write a book that people enjoy reading uh, and that they want to share with their friends, with their families, so that everybody has a different understanding of peace and, and people, so that it, it's a book to give hope to people, to give hope that there is a way to work differently, that there is a way to resolve conflict and that we, we can really change the world around us and also... Uh, we can decrease violence in, in even the worst possible conflict zones like Somalia and Congo. But 
So that's that's for the general uh, public. Now for the people who are adept of Peace Inc., with the way I call them, so people who work at the United Nations headquarters, for instance, or who work in, in foreign affairs ministries or in, in the leadership staff of many non-governmental organizations, I've had three kinds of reaction. The first one is uh, people who tell me, I love it. I'm, I'm so glad you're finally writing that uh, because I've been trying to convince my colleagues for years that they should change their approach and nobody has been listening to me. Uh, we all know that there are problems, but we don't know how to fix them. And now we have a solution. Now we have a way forward. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to use your book so that I can continue the advocacy within my own organization because my colleagues didn't want to listen to me. But hopefully, now that I have a book to show them, they're going to listen to me. We'll see. The other reaction is the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And it's people who can't stand the book and they can't stand me. So I've met with these people uh, virtually, of course, because everything is virtual these days. Uh, but at conferences, they, there are people um, who absolutely hate the analysis that I put forward. They completely disagree. Um, they usually what they tell me when or what they talk to okay when when they talk to me when it's during a conference they tell me that i'm completely wrong that the problems that i document uh in peace building don't exist uh that their organization is doing things very well and uh how dare i uh, make this kind of criticism because I should know that people have sacrificed a lot for this career, and uh, and 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 that's absolutely outrageous that I dare criticize their organization. Uh, and then they tell me, look, uh, if you look at this report, uh, I, this report says that uh, local conflict resolution is important and that uh, local and that we should put insiders in charge. And then at that at that point, I say yes, but. In practice, do you do it? Uh, and then, of course, they don't. So, uh, and 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 these people seem to be quite quite numerous within uh, the United Nations headquarters and in some foreign affairs ministry because I have former students and friends who try to advocate for the ideas that I put forward in the front lines of peace, and they tell me sometimes they mention my name, and then the person they are talking to just starts yelling completely yelling and saying, how dare you bring up her name? Uh, this is outrageous. Do you know what she writes, etc." So I know that there are people who hate me and who hate my work. Um, and then there is the, the third kind of reaction from the people who work in Peace Inc., which I find really, really amusing, uh, which is to say, oh, Severin, you are describing the other so well. <laughs> so, for instance, when I talk with uh, non-governmental organization staff members, they're like, oh, you're describing peacekeepers and uh, donors and diplomats to the T. It's exactly how they work. All of the problems you describe are, are there. And uh, the solutions that, uh, that you mention, well, this is what we're doing already. I'm like, no, not necessarily. Um, and, and then when I speak with peacekeepers, they're like, oh, what you uh, what you're describing it describe the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations, and the diplomats so well. But as for us, we're already doing everything that you're saying we should do in your book, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's it's a really 
interesting reaction uh, and uh, and one that I hope I'll find a good way to address. And, and that's why I wrote uh, the front lines of peace with examples from uh, a lot of different organizations and a lot of international organizations and a lot of uh, foreign affairs ministry. So that, yes, it, it gives the people who think that their organization is doing well, it gives them a way to think that. But at the same time, it gives them role models. It gives them a way forward. And it makes sure that they can't say, but I cannot use this approach within my own organization because of whatever bureaucratic constraints or whatever financial constraints because they can see that some of their colleagues are using this approach and some of their, their colleagues are doing fantastic work. And so it is possible, even within their organization or their foreign affairs ministry or their peacekeeping mission, it is possible to use this kind of approach and to really, really make a difference on the ground. We've talked a lot about the international pieces of this, but the last chapter of the book, you talk about how these lessons are also relevant on the home front. And maybe I can I can ask for a moderator's privilege that we can talk about the U.S. because we both have some experience there and you talk about it in the book. But realizing the home front can mean a variety of places that you mentioned. How do you see these lessons as applicable in places like the United States that people might not even think they need to be aware of, of this? Well, thank you, because it's it's a really important part of the book to me. It's uh, I, I made sure that I didn't write a book about things happening over there, you know, wherever over there might be. I wanted to write a book that would be useful for people wherever they live. And if they live in the United States, I wanted the book to be relevant for them if they want to improve things in their own community. So in the United States, we all know that violence is rising. Uh, the number of hate crimes and uh, gang fighting, terror attacks, shootings, killings has been going up steadily in the past few years. And of course, it's nowhere near as bad as Congo or Somalia. But still, there are many things that we can learn from what's going on in conflict zones to decrease uh, conflicts, uh, political, uh, economic, social, racial tensions in in the United States or in in Europe. I I have data also and material and stories about Europe as well. But let's focus on, on the U.S. When in the U.S., I feel that and, and I show in the book, it's more than a feeling. I, I demonstrate in the book that in the United States, we often tend to have the equivalent approach to Peace Inc. when we think about resolving a problem, meaning that we're going to think about elite. We're going to place our hope in governments, in our new legislators, in our new administration, in our new president. And we're going to hope that they're going to resolve conflict, they're going to pass new laws, and it's going to make things better. And of course, they have a role to play. But what's really important is that what I show in the book is that ordinary citizens like you and I also have a really important role to play. So I have stories in the front lines of peace where I talk about how the residents of Ichwe Island in Congo have managed to um, to create a, an island of peace, a heaven of peace, in the midst of the deadliest conflict since World War II. 
I show how in Somaliland, ordinary people, local actors, local activists have managed to build a zone of peace that is actually as large as, ter- as the Syrian uh, territory or uh, and for a population that's bigger than the population of Uruguay. Um, so ordinary people have a really important role to play and there are lessons we can learn. And, and so in, in the last chapter, uh, as you remember, I talk about these lessons such as uh, developing informal relationships with our opponents, whether they are political, ethnic, religious, cultural opponents. And, and I have these, these fabulous examples of uh, U.S. activists uh, like um, Christian Picciolini, uh, who's a fam- former gang leader, and uh, Daryl Davis, who's an African-American jazz musician. And by developing personal, informal relationships with members of white extremist groups, Christian and Daryl have managed to convince hundreds of militants to renounce hatred. And so for us, Beth, for people like you and I, we can use sport clubs, religious clubs, uh, trade unions, uh, art associations, because these are all good places where we can start building common ground with our opponents, with our enemies. Uh, And I have plenty of other lessons from conflict zones that uh, that we can learn and, and that we can apply in our own communities to make things better and to help decrease violence in our own communities. And, and I mentioned as well, fantastic organizations, uh, grassroots organizations that use the approach uh, that I saw in Warzone works so well. Uh, so organizations like Cure Violence, for instance, in the U.S., uh, uh, by using the same kind of insider-led bottom-up approach, cure violence has managed to reduce shooting and killings in more than 20 cities by up to 73%, which is absolutely fascinating. It is definitely. And there are so many. Th- thank you for sharing those insights. And there are a ton of other great stories in the book. But I know we've taken up a lot of your time. So I hope people get the book and read those. But before we let you go, can you tell us about what's next for you or what you're working on now? Of course, I'm always happy to talk about my new work. So I'm I'm, I'm playing with several ideas. I'm looking at doing an ethnography of war reporters. So basically, I like my second book, Peaceland. Peaceland was an ethnography of international peace builders. And I'm thinking that writing an ethnography of war reporters, looking at uh, their daily lives and how they socialize in conflict zones, how they approach their work, how they create knowledge, uh, the the really daily routines that they follow when they work on the ground. Uh, that can be a really interesting project. That can be really fun for me. And I've I've started doing a little bit of interviews and participant observations, and and I really enjoyed it. So uh, that may be the next book. Um, I also really really liked uh, writing a book uh, like the front lines of peace that was very accessible uh, and and that uh, for which so far again the book has been out just for <laughs> less than two months uh, but I've received a lot of very emotional reactions to the book uh, and uh, yeah, a lot of messages uh, or on social media or, or directly via email from people telling me what they felt when they read the book and and to me the fact that 
an academic work can uh, trigger this kind of very strong emotional reactions, I think that's fantastic. Uh, and reactions so strong that people feel that they need to contact me or to put it on social media and to actually tell everybody about their reaction to the book. Um, that's that's fantastic. That's I'm, I'm thrilled. Uh, and so I think that I would want my next project or I would want one of my next books to to be this kind of very accessible uh, book that speaks to a very broad audience and that people can really relate to and really enjoy and really appreciate and that they want to share. And so I've been trying to think about what kind of books I could write that would have this kind of broader appeal. Uh, I don't think that my ethnography of war reporter would cut it. So I'm thinking maybe of writing uh, a book on, on the Congo war so that people learn more about Congo and what's going on there because I'm, I'm still completely in love with that country. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to continue working on it and, and, and go back to, to go back there to do research on, uh, I've been also thinking of writing a, a general book on war and peace, uh, like an intro. And but the thing is that um, I I really need I need to finish this project first. And I know that the front lines of peace just came out, and that everybody assumes that it's the end of the project, and and now it's time for me to move on. But to me, there are still so many things that I want to work on uh, uh, that are related to the front lines of peace. I I'm fascinated by what we were discussing just five minutes ago, the idea of what we can learn from conflict zones to improve the situation in our own communities. And uh, that's something I, I want to work more on. And uh, perhaps it's going to be a new article. Perhaps it's going to be a new book. Uh, I also want to learn more how we can how we can articulate uh, top-down and bottom-up peace building because we know that both are really important, uh, working with elite and working with ordinary people. But we haven't found a good case yet of articulation of top-down and bottom-up peace building. So I'm, I'm looking for a case like that, and I'm thinking maybe going to Bougainville, uh, because that seems to be one of the only cases that exist of that and learning from there. Um, and But the thing, to be frank with you, Beth, I, I think I... I need to take a break. Uh, so far, I, I, as you say, I've been doing a lot of events, uh, a, a lot of talks about the book and media interviews, etc. And it, it's wonderful. It's exhilarating. I'm, I'm thrilled that there is so much interest in the book. Uh, but it means that I don't have the mental space to think about anything else because I'm always talking about the front lines of peace. And, and so I think I, I need at a point to stop doing too many interviews and too many events around uh, this book and, and to say, okay, now it's done and uh, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take vacations. Uh, and when I come back from my vacations, I'm going to work on something completely different. Well, Severine, thanks so much for sharing that. You model your own, the lessons you've learned throughout your career in the book. And I think it's valuable to share that with other folks that it's important to give yourself time to think about new ideas and recharge. And, and the ones you already have sound really interesting. Well, thank you so much, Beth. I'm, I'm glad you like them. And I hope they're going to result in, in interesting projects and interesting articles or books. I'm sure they will. And I thank you for being on the show today to talk about this most recent book. 
Well, thank you so much for having me, Beth. I really enjoyed our discussion. Thanks for your interest. The Frontlines of Peace, an insider's guide to changing the world by Severine Autusser is available now from Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.